Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people. I simply had the conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 78, with the title, Too White to be Black, and Too Black to be White. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Holly Straker-Humphreys. Holly describes herself as an inclusion leader. And when I asked Holly to describe her superpower, she said that her strange talent is for writing effective emails and complaints to companies. Her best achievement was an email to the CEO of Dyson to challenge them on how they perpetuated idealizations of Western beauty in the way they talked about their hair care products and stigmatized Afro hair as a problem. Hello, Holly. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joanne. Thank you so much for having me. I sound like a bit of a loser, don't I? <laughs> no, no, not at all. I mean, we've known each other a few years now, and I would never put you in any category like that. So, no, no, you're you're an amazing, <laughs> amazing, a wonderful person. So, no, not at all. So, Holly, um, this episode is, is is titled "Too White to Be Black and Too Black to Be White." Why? Why does that mean something to you? Yeah, so I think, so I'm turning 30 this year. Wow, yeah, I need to um, get myself on board with that. Um, And I would say it's probably only the last two, three, four years where I felt truly comfortable in being me and truly comfortable in knowing who I am, what I stand for, my identity. So I guess if we take that right back to the beginning and maybe why I wasn't comfortable. Um, so I am mixed race. I am half white. So my dad is white British and my mum is of Bayesian descent. So from Barbados and um, that's where my mum's family's from. Um, and I've grown up in North Leeds which is a relatively affluent area in Leeds, quite a middle-class area, um, attended predominantly white schools throughout my um, childhood. And I think looking back, that you only know what you know, right? So I guess that was just the environment that I was used to. But there was probably always something that made me feel like, why aren't I just fitting in here and it's not that like I had loads of great friends I grew up I had an amazing childhood like I was like cereal packet nuclear family so I could not um complain about any of my experiences I never had um any particularly negative experiences around the way that I looked or my identity it was just something inside me just didn't always click probably particularly when I was older um and then if you flip to more of the black side of my identity so 
Um, my I have a massive, big Bayesian Caribbean family, and we have super strong um, family values. So there's a lot of Sunday get-togethers around food, and it'll be a Sunday night at six o'clock when everyone's dancing in the kitchen. Like we have such good positive energy in our family. Like my family is everything. Um, but. Uh, we'd often get comments, so me and my brother, around our accents, how we speak, where we lived, like in jest from our family. Like we're we're very um, comical family. Like we'll we'll make jokes out of each other a lot. But I guess that's where the sentiment of too white to be black and too black to be white came from. You just didn't quite fit in either community, um, and. Growing up and even where I am now, I think it takes you a long time when you are of mixed heritage to really understand how to be you happily in the middle and how you can appreciate and value both sides of your identity or multiple sides of your identity, but um, still feel like you belong somewhere and find your people. so yeah, I just I just have a lot of memories of like going to visit my um white grandparents in the countryside and sitting in a countryside pub and me and my brother being the only um non-white people and my mum as well. And then going to visit my um mum's parents in Hare Hills, which is quite a ethnically diverse area in Leeds, and just feeling, oh, this isn't quite what I'm used to. So it was just almost two worlds coming together and where do I fit in the middle of it? Um, so yeah, that's how I, would, how I would describe where that's come from. So you, I think you described yourself as, as a feeling you have a sense of privilege because of your, maybe your accent, because of your fairly light brown skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you, you feel you have benefited from some characteristics as well as as well as the affluent area you grew up in? Oh God, yeah. I think um I straighten my hair now. Um I think particularly probably because I work in a corporate environment, it just feels better. I wish I didn't feel that way, but it does. Um my the way that I speak um doesn't sound particularly different to other people in a corporate environment. And um, obviously, as you mentioned, um, quite light skin. Um, I've always had, both my parents went to university. So I've always had that kind of access and education and I guess aspiration from them as well. So there's so much, this is why it's quite a strange, um, strange, there's a lot at play here because if you took my life on paper, it's been wonderful, but still that sense of belonging was missing for quite mm. some time. Um, so yeah, it's a complex one because I, I've had brilliant childhood, amazing access to opportunities. I've been able to excel my career, um, but still there was something that was always missing for me in terms of really understanding and feeling comfortable in who I was. You've mentioned your hair a couple of times. What once in your superpower about the complaint to C.O. Dyson, you mentioned <laughs> it as well. Um, how much pressure do you feel that you're, you're, you're self-imposing 
around the way your hair looks or is is there a genuine discrimination uh, against afro style hair in in the workplace in in society well i guess you don't have to look far in the research to find um yes there is in terms of how people are treated at school being discriminated putting in put in um exclusion for certain af- natural afro hairstyles and then similarly at work people have been directly discriminated against for how their hair is but i guess for me i am lucky to have not experienced either of those things um i guess for me it's been a lot more subtle but i know from some research that's been done around how we experience issues around race sometimes the subtle things can be more damaging psychologically and um, because it's harder to pinpoint harder to understand it is it all in my head is it just me and mm. um, so like going back to being at school um you used to get on the bus and go to swimming with the whole class and everyone was like oh washing their hair after swimming and it's like oh no way what a hair an afro hair wash as a child is a two to three hour activity on a sunday night usually when your mum's screaming smacking you with the hairbrush (laughs) um and it's it kind of just started to lay these little seeds around feeling dirty or not feeling as as other kids could just go in the shower wash their hair come out and no I don't think anyone ever actually said anything that explicit but it just started with that and then when you lay over kind of like skin tone and things like that I think I just subconsciously started to build this slightly negative perception and then you move into like at lunchtime let's all braid our hair and it's like oh no the bubble's stuck in my hair you can't get that brush through my hair because it will snap it's just those little subtle things um and then I think as I've got older the programs that you watch on television the adverts that you see you never see hair that looks like mine in a in a a positive way it's always um all the the adverts on tv are on anti-frizz combat that frizz um smoothing your hair like it's never really i've at growing up at my age i'd never really seen anyone have hair like mine and it be really appreciated maybe apart from mel b and the spice girls now I'm thinking back on it. Yeah, and I did has, idolize her quite a lot. She has fair pair, doesn't she? I've always been yeah. quite envious of her hair. And anybody with that kind of real bouncy, big, afro-y, kind of curly, it's, it's very powerful, I think. It's, it's a, yeah, I exactly. Movie stars with it, and it's yeah, a very, a very power cut, I think. And I guess I could probably see that, but for the environment that I was in, it just didn't feel right. And I know when I started going to like job interviews and I just did not, I'm always straight in my hair. I just did not feel comfortable. And this, this is why I think looking at the impact of inclusion across and how it's embedded in societal structures is so powerful because nobody as a child was ever explicitly racist to me so if there's anything wrong with the color of my skin I had a, a brilliant childhood like was surrounded by plenty of black people from my family but still 
there was something that just did not make me feel proud of the way that I looked, particularly in terms of my hair. Um, so yeah, powerful. So what you're doing now is 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 in corporate environments around the inclusion, belonging, DEI, whichever mm-hmm. acronym you prefer. Do do you think? Your heritage, your your mixed heritage, and your lived experience gives you a an additional superpower of insight into that environment. I think so. Yeah, I think I have always seen myself as because I've had the that kind of socioeconomic privilege. I've managed to get myself to a point in my career I actually never thought I would, um, and so I feel quite a heavy responsibility as a woman of colour in quite a senior corporate role to use my power position experience to uplift others who maybe just do not get that opportunity because of the networks they exist in, access to financial resources, even just general role models and aspirations like the famous saying, it's hard to be what you can't see. I've always been... I know people feel, can feel quite uncomfortable and rightly so of being that token black person that's on every career site or every uh, recruitment poster. And I get that, like we shouldn't be there. However, I've always been quite comfortable in being that person because I know that if that, if for me, that would have made a difference seeing someone like me. So I almost see it as a bit of a duty and responsibility Um and not in a negative way like I I feel quite empowered by being able to do that um and I do quite a lot of mentoring and specifically people from minority backgrounds and it's a consistent theme around just not quite feeling like you fit in confidence identity and once you can help connect people with others like them or just shift that mindset around your uniqueness can be your superpower and get you to places that you thought it might hold you back. I've seen people progress massively, both in their careers, but personally, just in terms of confidence, values, understanding who they are. And so, yeah, and I think it took me a while um, in my first corporate jobs to understand that my different perspective wasn't weird or wrong. It actually was really valuable. And as soon as I started to use my voice in that way, I was like, oh, wow, maybe maybe um, this could get me somewhere. And the more confident I did with that, the, the more confident I was with that, the faster my career excelled. But I guess you've got to work to get to that point. It's not as easy to just turn up to work one day and be like, right, I'm a confident black female. Let me go take on the world and give all my ideas. Like I really had to find my people at work, get that kind of um, girl gang around me to, to support and empower me and uplift my voice, find managers that really truly believe me and pushed me and find other people who were looked like me to to share the experiences with and keep pushing ourselves um so yeah you there's a lot of work and you are working against like systems and structures as well we we can't discount that um 
but what I've I have seen people get there and it's an amazing thing and that's what drives me in my role against all the crap that we also have to deal with. Joanne, you'll know as an inclusion specialist. <laughs> yeah, I, I, just picking up on a few things you said there, you, know, you had to get your girl gang together to give you that confidence, to give you that boost, and to sort of almost like challenge the incumbent or challenge the monoculture. And uh, as you were saying, I thought, well, all that's all that's there already is is the boy gang. So it's not like they've done anything different they've just they've got their own tribe they've got their own boy gang mm -hmm. own white boy clan and they they inherently have this superpower about them because they're amplifying each other and it's just the way things have been because it's been the incumbent culture if you like so you're doing no different getting your own um amplifier supporters and mentors around you um that are going to look after your needs and i i think that's it's i don't think i often find that it's not a fault of the privileged people who have who are incumbent they're just unaware that, that that's how they're operating and they, they don't they're not aware that people don't have the same access to the opportunity because they just see the opportunity yeah, exist it's just it's just it's in the air they breathe and that just, yeah you only know what you know and what your experience yeah, is yeah. so why would you think any different and the more i talk to people in the in the kind of the DEI space, inclusion space, you you realise that most people have imposter syndrome. Most people have, have mm. worry about not being good enough, whether it's around their identity, whether it's about their capability. And so what you said there is is often, you know, we think about this, the mindset of the, we call it the marginalised candidate or the marginalised person or the minority person, whatever that, whatever that terminology really means. It's kind of a crass way of describing it. But the the mindset of people who aren't the default mm -hmm. tends to be one that their imposter syndrome exists or the, the access to the networks that exist, the access to information doesn't exist. And it's really hard to break that down and create those support structures in organizations to empower, as you're saying, you know, those, those mental programs, those fast track programs, those awareness programs. Yeah, completely. And what you were just talking about there reminds, brings my mum to mind, actually, who my mum is a little bit of a superpower within, a superwoman within herself. Um, and I carry some of her within me in terms of she grew up um, predominantly in Hare Hills, which, as I mentioned, was a ethnically diverse area. My grandparents had moved over from Barbados, so part of that generation of coming over from the Caribbean. But my mum has kind of found her way in a lot of quite white environments. So she worked in a university, she went to university, and um, worked in a lot of corporate organisations. And she's always said she loves to be that only black woman in the room, almost to prove everything wrong, prove the status quo that I'm here and I can do this. And I think I carry that a little bit. I love, I almost can get a little bit of a thrill of walking into a meeting room, meeting a new executive. And I'm not only a, a mixed race woman, but also I look quite young. Um, I still get ID'd for paracetamol in the supermarket and I think that's 16 so there we go <laughs> um and my I've got a northern accent I my voice sounds relatively young as well and people kind of look at me and at the start they're not really listening you can tell with like body language and then by the end they're like oh shit she maybe knows what she's talking about 
And I get a bit of a thrill from that in that like prove people wrong. And I think you can take a lot of fire and drive from working against some of the systems that we have in society. Um, so I definitely got that from my mum. And she'll listen to this and she'll love this because she loves them. She loves getting a mention. Yeah. You're so right. I, I, and I think when you have a a powerful voice in the room that has a different perspective, it's hard not to listen. Although some people, yeah, some people choose not to listen, but a lot of people do listen. And I, I, I hear what you're saying about being the only person in the room. Um, I often am the only person in the room who's trans. And in fact, really? If I see another trans person in the room, I get a bit jealous. Go, hang on a minute, this is my space. I want to, I want to be the only person. I want to be the one, you know, kind of the diva sort of thing. But no, it's it, but it's also from a psychological safety point of view, it's really, really hard sometimes to know you're the only person in the room, know that you're going to end up having certain questions or certain conversations with people all the time that want your opinion on something. Can I can I not be trans for one day? Do I do I have to talk about? being a black woman all the time can I just not talk about being something else yeah. there's a lot of pressure for you to be representative isn't it yeah completely and I think there's also that pressure that a lot of people feel of when you are the first and only one if you ruin it for if you don't do an amazing job like have you you ruin that perception of the, of the whole community so you carry a lot of that weight as well because we know that that's how people think Oh, we've got the first black prime minister, for example. They, if they're not great, then that changes the perception of the whole black community and whether they can do a good job of being a prime minister, for example. Yeah. So I think you carry a lot of that weight as well to really prove you, you're you not just there for you, you're there for all of you people. Yes, no, there is, I know what you mean. There's, I, I suppose I'm guilty of it if I see somebody else who's trans or non-binary or gender diverse misrepresenting my view of the world i think hang on a minute you don't speak for me you're you're, you're damaging my brand yeah it's like yeah i get that completely but i guess that's just how society and people we've lumped everyone together under these labels so yeah. that's how it plays out so i i've I often hear from people, one of the biggest barriers to inclusion is the fear of getting it wrong, you know, either doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, causing a microaggression, inadvertent. So do you scare people by being I yet? hope not. <laughs> I hope not. Um, I think I've always had feedback, and I'm only going based on this, that I can often break down some of that fear by providing people a bit of a safe space to come with challenges, perceptions, ideas, and not place judgment, but help them appreciate the other perspective. So um, particularly in my last role, I worked so closely with our entire extended leadership team and exact leadership team and built really close relationships with each of them to be that safe space. So if they're going on a company town hall and they don't know, should they say BAME or, or should they not? Like I'm the place that they can come and test out those, um, test out the ways that they should, shouldn't speak their ideas, what they're thinking, how to approach things. 
Um, but I completely get the fear. Like the way that social media can come and take you down and cancel you now, it's wild. And I get it because people are tired, people are angry, people have been through this stuff over and over again. So I get that side of things. However, I think it's not helpful. Like we need these people. If we want to see things change, like we have to work with them. So I always take the approach of building close relationships with um, these types of people to be able to understand their fears, understand like what's been their life experience because sometimes people hold things that have happened to them that they feel are just as important as an issue around race, for example, and they haven't necessarily had the education around how some of those issues are uh, systemic and ingrained in society so they can't understand why that maybe holds a little more weight around a certain conversation or has more impact for an individual. So um, I definitely like to say that I hopefully don't make people fearful. However, I think on the flip side, in roles like ours, you also do have to be ready to make people feel a little uncomfortable. You've got to call things out. You've got to challenge them. And it's quite hard to find that balance, I think. Um, so, yeah, uh, an interesting one. Yeah, I, it, I, interesting to use the word perspective. And I think that's really, really valuable. To, it's about understanding a perspective, isn't it? We often want to be right. We want to, we, we, yeah, wars and disagreements and divorces and whatever often started by the, the desire or the need to be right. Whereas we, we we don't spend enough time understanding why somebody thinks something or, or what their lived experience is. And the often the example I often use is we we go to the voting booth with a little bit of paper and our, and our stubby little pencil and we tick the box based on the candidate that we believe is going to be the best person. And we don't all <laughs> tick the same box. We, often, we, we all tick the box that resonates with us. And it's not that we're right or wrong. It's just that we have a perspective on why we believe that person could do the best job. And it's it's so important to, to not, you know, if in my view, not to argue about outcomes, but discuss perspectives. Because we don't have to agree, we, but we can understand why someone thinks something. And that's the hard challenge. I'm so with you on that. And I think one of the biggest fundamental changes in my own perspective, so growing up in quite a middle-class environment, um, I used to enjoy watching crappy things on Channel 4 and Channel 5 around, um, well, what are they called? Like benefits fraudsters and all of those like ridiculous dramatized um tv shows and it was only and obviously that then fuels your mind full of crap around perceptions around these groups of people that i maybe didn't come across in day-to-day -day life because of the environment that i was in and and then i met and uh, jack who is my now husband who grew up in a completely different socioeconomic environment so grew up in more deprived areas of Leeds um, and just spending time with him hearing his experiences about growing up and why 
why would a young 12-year-old male smash up a bus stop with a brick? Or why would um, why would people be on benefits and not be able to get a job because their mental health is so poor because of the poverty that they're living in? Just understanding that perspective honestly changed my life. And it was quite weird because on paper, you would see Jack as a cis, straight, white male and me as a woman of colour. And you would assume certain things about how we might fare in society when actually it was quite the opposite. And I think um, socioeconomic status is like the missing piece when we talk about inclusion because it's such a big driver and it intersects across all the different demographics, but it's always seems to be missing in inclusion conversations. So I know that growing up as a moody, strappy teenager, watching all of those crappy TV shows, and I'd be mouthing off on Facebook statuses about and engaging conversations about certain groups. And then meeting Jack, I was like, oh my gosh, wow. And interestingly, he's had the same experience understanding the lives of middle-class people. Not everyone's a, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, not everyone's a, a middle-class twat who doesn't give a shit about, um, who doesn't care about like issues that, that he might have experienced or just because they drive a certain car with a nice house doesn't mean they're an idiot. Um, so like it's been yeah. a really interesting experience to like bring our worlds together. And I think we are both better people because of it. And I also feel like I can do my job so much better because I personally have gone through a process of shifting and changing my perspective. So when I need to work with leaders to help them understand the experiences of women within their business and the challenges that they might face in their career and how the, that particular leader's actions and behaviours might be impacting that, like helping them shift that perspective. I feel like I can go about that in quite an effective way because I've personally gone through that. Um, and even as a mixed race female, I've got a couple of hidden disabilities that I'll throw in there as well. Um, like it does not make me perfect and does not make me be able to be an advocate for all of inclusion. Like you, no matter who we are, everybody has to educate themselves because we only know our worlds and what we know. Um, so yeah, I think that was also quite a profound experience for me in terms of perspective. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree that uh, we speak through our own lens and our own privilege and our own characteristics, our own lived experience. And as a DEI professional, I think we both learned over the years that to know the lens through which we speak and and ensure that we, we, we do the work, we put the hard graft in to understand other perspectives and, and don't take it for face value. And I'm I'm a great believer in talking about uh, cultural intelligence. and It, it is about mm. that lifelong learning to, to get perspectives of people and as you say the way the media demonize the Tories as a, as a, as a, as a class or the benefit scroungers or the um, the striking nurses we, we want to we want to sell mm. clicks and media and we're trying to influence and the and the media works on divide and conquer so as, as does the government and I think Exactly. It's understanding. It's understanding that what the game of, of play is, and choosing not to play that game and try and navigate through it. Exactly. We're just playing into the hands of what what 
they want to create when actually the only people losing out are us as human beings? Yeah, I mean, you've only got to look at what the reality shows like I'm a slip to get me out of here and uh, Love Island. They're, they're trying to pitch you against each other and they deliberately <laughs> create scenarios to create tension because there's there's lots of studies that if you put humans in a group, they, the conflict doesn't always arise. Most people will just mm-hmm. get on with each other and you've, you, you build a community. So unless you put a disruptor in there, there's no telly. It's just 10 people getting yeah. on with each other, um, looking out for each other and having a bit of a laugh. Uh, so you've got to put, you've got to put a Matt Hancock in the jungle to create that disruption. You've got to, you've got to starve people and make them, make them fight for food in order to, to, to get their animal instincts out because by default they don't exist and as a society we would get on with each other a lot better if it wasn't being stoked by by the media and sometimes by the government mm-hmm. creating the division yeah I always say money rules the world it does influence and power yeah or mm-hmm. people wanting more of it and even in the utopian world, there's always somebody who rules the world, isn't there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that keeps the utopia intact. Though, you can... yeah. what do you think are the biggest challenges that uh, organisations face? I know, I know that when we worked together uh, at your previous company, that you were you, you had some very uh, forward-thinking ways of measuring and embedding um, systems and process around EDI and inclusion. Into the organization. What are organizations failing to do, if you like, now? I think, and some of my views and experiences might be quite different to what other EDI professionals might think. But if you typically look at some of the reading around what are the, the best things that organizations can do to embed or start a DEI strategy, it's always get some employee resource groups together and get an exec sponsor like they're the two things that will often come up and I think with that first one around employee resource groups there is so much power in bringing people together who face similar challenges to have each other's back informally mentor each other like just finding your people finding your community as I've talked about However, what I don't quite agree with is them putting it on that marginalised community to then fix the problems that they experience in the workplace for free on top of their day job that then probably makes t- takes time away from their day job, meaning they may be then aren't able to perform at their best in role and then how does that impact their career? And sometimes with limited budget as well um, and also limited experience in skill and knowledge in some of the things that are really needed to make a change um like people policy or recruitment or change management um all of those things and i think we've kind of just in a lot of places bucketed dei's this like nice thing to do and if we've got these groups and we're talking about it and we've got something that we can put on our career site or in our annual report then that's fine but is that really going to drive the changes that we want to see? No. And with the second point I made around exec sponsors, like they can have 
equally so much power if you've got a senior voice at the table driving this piece of work like you can make phenomenal change however what about the rest of the leadership team isn't it just part of every single one of their roles to be an advocate an ally a sponsor be role modeling the right behaviors and actions setting the tone for what the organization should be and I think it's very easy to put all the responsibility for that onto one individual rather than how are they all taking that into their everyday teams, departments, lives, job? And are they collectively as a leadership team talking about how DEI impacts the business goals? Or is it just because we've got that one person that goes to the monthly meeting with the employee resource groups, then we're good. Like it's just not good enough. Um, And uh, you go to, Joanne, you will know this, you go to so many webinars and talks and people sit and their first question they ask is, why are we still here? Why haven't we seen any change? And it's because we're doing a rubbish job. <laughs> like we're not putting the right resource, expertise, strategy, metrics around what we want to see. And I think equally, if you look wider, like we know that the workplace is just one piece of the inclusion jigsaw like we're not getting the right support from the government around for example shared parental leave or looking at increasing statutory paternity pay so that we can reshift the balance around parental responsibilities and how that impacts the careers of women like we're not as a wider society we we say these things and we stand up and we say we care about inclusion and then like our actions do the opposite um So I think it's something that every CEO would probably stand up on a town hall or they'd get asked in a slide, is it a priority? And they'd say yes. But are they necessarily putting the infrastructure behind that to make it work and really, truly realising the benefits and potential that they could get within their organisation if they seriously address their challenges? No. So... I think as the society, we can do a lot better with this, but where's the appetite to do that? Do you think that many organisations, and I don't want to generalise, as the high professionals, we should never generalise or stereotype, uh, though I'm conscious about that. Do we, do we think that a lot of EDI professional staff networks are end up being, uh, this sounds quite derogatory, um, coffee and cake on a Friday, uh, hashtag celebrants, uh, event organisers, bean counters, you know, how many of this, how many of that have we got? What are our pay gaps? So they're more operational and backward looking rather than strategic and embedded as part of the business. How do, or how do we get past that? Yeah, I think like what I do not want to portray here is that staff networks haven't achieved amazing things because I know in some organizations, wow, they've really changed the game and still do. But whether it's right for them to be doing that on top of their role unpaid is my biggest bugbear here. Um, And I think you're right. Like I've seen examples of places I've worked where that's what staff networks have become. Um, In terms of like events and comms driven, which that absolutely has a place like we need that awareness we need those safe spaces for people to come together and 
those events and things that people organize can sometimes be the catalyst for a lot of change. What I'm saying is we need the rest of the infrastructure to really drive the change around applying a DEI lens over an entire people strategy, looking at where it fits into their business goals, picking apart all the systems and processes, having the right resource and education in place to do that. So I think they absolutely do have a place. It's just we're missing some of the other stuff that can really help drive and get us to the outcomes that we want to see. So is it all about the business case or is it always about doing the right thing for people? You know, we see these polarized debates on LinkedIn and other platforms about people who are evangelical about it's not the business case. You can't put the business case before people. And other people go, no, hang on a minute, it's got to be a business case. So where, where, where do you sit on the fence on that one? Interesting one. I probably put myself in the middle because like my personal values, I... I'm very strongly aligned in terms of people getting access to opportunities and being uplifted and um, organisations having a bit of responsibility to fix the problems that the world has created. So that's where I'd sit on that side. On the business case side, like I don't think that should be the single driver. However, I do think there is so much opportunity that businesses are just not tapping into because they haven't got this broad perspective that actually those communities can also benefit from. So for example, if we take accessibility, like if organisations were thinking about accessibility first, the disabled community would be benefiting more from the products and services that we, we get in society. So whilst yes you don't want money to be the only driver of why we're thinking about the business case but as a result of that the communities that we're trying to help can also benefit so i think mm. i don't think i'm one or the other i think it fits quite nicely together and that's where you mentioned at the beginning around my letter to dyson um so i wanted to buy the dyson air app this was a couple of years ago and i was having a redo my research and all of the copy was like combat your frizzy hair or like um I can't remember the exact wording but it was like fight fight the frizz kind of um phraseology and um I was just like why on earth am I gonna invest like this hair dryer is not cheap not why am I gonna invest the hundreds of pounds in something that's like contradicting my identity. Like it just doesn't make sense. It's a racist recruitment. <laughs> so like you, like I, but I really wanted the hairdryer. So that's why I wrote the letter in terms of like just offering my perspective. And to be fair, they were great. I got invited to speak to the marketing director. Like they changed all of the language. So like shout out to Dyson. Um, however, so it's, it all kind of works together. Like if you're doing the right thing and bringing people into your organization, giving them opportunities to progress their career, do great work, be innovative, give their ideas, then like the business case will like speak for itself. But then also that community benefits on the other side of it because I can buy a hairdryer that really works well in terms of being able to manage my Afro hair. Um, so yeah, I think um, you'll probably find me in the middle that I'm, I'm with you on that I mean, what i always say is if you think about the three three dynamics you know compliance i.e the law 
business case and the human factor. I would say if you get the human factor right, the business case and the compliance become they they work. You don't have to focus on the business case. You just you just exactly. do the right thing for people, and and make sure people feel that ex- positive experience. And then the business case will will fall out of that, and you can easily quantify that by discretionary effort, uh, empty seat costs, retention, uh, all those great great things we know comes out of inclusion and belonging that we we know we're going to get better from. And I often, exactly. I often get frustrated when we we see sort of organizations but they haven't maybe hit the the maturity model on the dei curve and they they still talk about diversity we've got to get more diversity and then they start thinking about inclusion they think about uh, belonging then they think about culture I, I i always want people to flip it on its head by saying let's start with culture if we get the mm-hmm. culture right we got our brand values right we get our employee values right then out of culture comes belonging i feel aligned with the yeah. organization if i feel belonging i'm going to feel included if i feel included then there's a place for me. Therefore, the diversity will naturally permeate in that environment. So I think, I think often what we, 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 we see people trying to hire their way out of a diversity problem or we're going to do some sort of diverse hiring. And I say, well, going to market is the last thing you do once you've got everything else in the organization. Otherwise, all you're doing is you're, you're, bringing, dirty, you're bringing new fish into a dirty pond. And that, that's what happens. Mm-hmm. That they, they don't thrive. They just they forget fit and leave. Yeah, completely. I I know that um, when we worked together, Joanne, that's exactly what we were doing. So we ran your Journey to Conscious Inclusion workshops and powerful allyship workshops um, from top down from our senior leadership team, along with um, giving them the opportunity to get a different perspective. So we did a reciprocal mentoring scheme as well that ran alongside that. So um, a member of our leadership team was matched with someone from a minority group in the organization so that the leadership team member could help uplift the person with their advice from their career. And then they'd get to understand more about what life was like at the organization from a different perspective. And doing those things got us to such a great place and you could feel the change. And then I've I've moved on from that particular organization now, but now like I know as I was leaving, like you started to see the shifts in percentage increases in particular demographics and externally, I think people felt the authenticity around the change and we could clearly articulate the things that we had done to be able to call ourselves well, I don't think you can ever call yourself 100% inclusive, but to call ourselves an organization that's really working towards building an inclusive environment. Um, Mm. So I'm so with you on that. And I think it can do so much damage because you will hire all these people from different backgrounds. And if you haven't got that environment right, they'll just leave or it'll cause conflict or they won't be able to perform at their best. And then you've proved some of those perceptions right that people might have around diversity isn't actually valuable and um, it causes challenges and we're just doing it because we need to look good or look a certain way so I think it can cause more damage than good if you don't go about it in the right way yeah I, I don't know if you've read uh is it Lily Zeng's book DEI Deconstructed and oh I need to order that yeah it looks so I... brilliant I've got it on Audible and I was listening to it on the way, I was driving to Manchester the other week, I had about four hours in the car each way and it's about a 12-hour book on Audible 
Um, one of the things that struck me, and yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I follow them on uh, on LinkedIn and often engage with their posts. And one of the things that they talked about was we often worry about having one of everybody and be like Noah's Ark. We need one of these, one of those, one of those in order to have representation. Um, so we need to have a, a, a black person in the room to talk about, etc. And what they said was that it's, it's not just about having one of everybody. It's having the trust that the people who are in the room are, have your back and are thinking about you. So we can't necessarily represent every permutation of intersectionality. But we can trust that the people who are having the conversations have, have your back and have, and, are, and are considering you and are thinking about you and will talk to you if you if they need more information. Then that's going to be some of the objective. And I think we often get too engrossed in ticking boxes and bean counting mm-hmm. and not building trust and in, embedding those sort of systems. And I think that was quite insightful. So, and I think yeah, I love that because I often talk about trust. When we talk about employee engagement service, when we talk about data capture, when we, that's what we can, we can almost measure trust. How well people engage with us? Do they believe in us? Uh, will they communicate with us? And it's, uh, again, within inclusion belonging, yeah, trust is a huge element. Again, psychological safety, bring your whole self to work. It's about being comfortable with your peers and your, your colleagues, isn't it? Yeah, I really love that um, how, sh- how they've, Praise that. Lily Den is just like the ultimate on LinkedIn. Like yeah. anything they say, I'm like, yep, yeah, like take that in, write it down. Yeah. <laughs> she she can be a bit shouty, so I I often have to filter the shoutiness sometimes, and mm-hmm. often often a lecture. But yeah, the, the message they put out is 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 always always helpful, always insightful. Yeah, um, yeah. I I'd, I'd, I'd advocate anyone uh, follow them. Um, if they if if they if they're on LinkedIn, if they want to find out more, and I don't often recommend books, but I, I have it on the shelf behind me, and uh, I have it on Audible as well, so I bought it twice. <laughs> so the I often again go back to LinkedIn. This is where I often get the, the, the temperature gauge and the thermometer of the world. Um, a lot of DEI pr- practitioners are are tired. They're exhausted. Mm-hmm. They're working in advance where they feel this onslaught of, 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 of walking through a treacle every day. I mean, A, a do you feel that? Or, or And how do we overcome that? How, how do we inspire DI practitioners to just brush it off and carry on? I definitely feel that. And I think you cannot escape it either. Um, because you log off from work and then you'll put on the news or there'll be something in a WhatsApp group chat because we have so much access to information now. Things are being shared so much more, which is a positive thing, Um, but also can be so mentally draining. You physically cannot escape it. Um, And my husband, Jack, is a family lawyer. He works in care, so kids that are... um, have social services involvement so like our dinner table chat is very heavy and you almost see the cycle of um what the families he works with experience and how that plays out in terms of what I see in the working world so like it's everywhere um so yeah I definitely feel that one thing that I 
will always treasure is a couple of colleagues that I worked with in my previous role. We have a WhatsApp chat called Tired and Oppressed. <laughs> And that's like our little safe space to rant or um, to like get advice or because some of the decisions that you have to make in our role, like they're heavy, they're people's lives and you could go one way or another. And even as an inclusion professional, like I worry about being cancelled, like saying the wrong thing. So um, that's like my little safe space um, with a couple of colleagues. And then um, I really have to proactively manage my mental health and how I take care of myself in terms of like giving myself space to decompress from some of some of this and I, I think as well because you're working on it you're living it but also like if you're part of a minority group like it's you and your life as well like you experience these things day to day anyway so it's coming at you from all angles so like I will watch a lot of crappy reality tv after work just as an escapism like you've got to find your escape or go for a long walk with my dog and just listen to music or just you've just got to have those self-care strategies in place because it's a lot it really is and you can find yourself in the middle of a spectrum of people who are like the world's too PC. You're, I just want to come to work, do my work and go home. This is ridiculous. Right through to our leadership team should have a black woman, a someone who has digital accessibility needs, someone who it should be 50-50 gender split. Like, this isn't good enough. Like, what are you doing? So like, you've got, you get an attack from both sides. So it is absolutely a lot. And you've got to be quite resilient in this role I think um resilient but still carry empathy still be able to challenge like you there's so many skills that I've had to learn and develop quite quickly and I think you need a good network of people around you to help you do that um because it is a lot it is and it's one of the reasons I like doing this podcast is you share lots of perspectives with lots of different people around a topic you care passionately about and it allows you to just listen to other people's challenges as well and other people's perspectives. And it, it means that it's not just me, everybody else is going through this as well. And it is easy. And as you say, the, the chat, the, the, it's, it's too easy to take on your own characteristic and as a champion and then be thwarted by it, be ground down by it. And sometimes you have to have that pressure cooker release valve that is to mm -hmm. and let it go. I, I can't fix this and I need to turn the dial yeah. down, get rid of the noise. Um, yeah, if you looked at what's going on in the papers at the moment around trans people, it would just mm. lose your mental health away. So you, you've got it. You've got to attenuate it and and and, and talk about something else. So yeah, it is it is, it is exhausting. It is exhausting. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, th I think we also probably need to do as a society or a business community is to recognize DEI professionals in the same way we recognize HR professionals. Maybe maybe the, the professionalism is still hasn't matured yet around, you know, we don't have a, a body like the CIPD. I'm not saying the CIPD is perfect, but we don't have a – DEI is different in HR. I, I don't think you should report to HR or be part of HR. I, I think we can all have debates about whether talent acquisition, branding, marketing – HR all have this, as you say, cross-directed DEI impact. So DEI needs to have its own voice uh, and should be in everyone's everyone's report, like health and safety and risk. It should be in everyone's report. And I think 
we need to help professionalize the industry or the, the business community and give people support because it's still it's still quite new it's probably less than 10 years old really in many cases and mm-hmm. a lot of people get a lot of people get into it like they get into recruiting because it, it, there was a vacancy and they got it and i think we need to better training better support um and uh, yeah move it on from being a kind of as I say as i said earlier just parties and hashtags and uh, and and, and yeah. reporting it needs to be more tactical and strategic so that yeah that's my soapbox uh Molly, <laughs> i mean we we've we've talked for hours over the years and this has been another fascinating conversation to to dive a little bit deeper into your own perspectives so uh how can people get hold of you if you'd like to uh, if you'd like to get people to get hold of you that is yeah, no, that is fine. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn, Holly Straker Humphreys. Um, I'm not a tweeter or um anything like that. I, in fact, that is one of the things that I came off to save my mental health because it's just way too much. Um, so feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and I'll be happy to chat to anyone, whether it's just someone who else who works in this industry. I think it's always good to build our network. Someone who's thinking about getting into the industry, or um, someone who maybe completely disagrees with everything that I've said. Got a perspective. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely agree. It's 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 great to be challenged and keep you on your, on your toes. I, I completely agree. But that's that's fantastic. And I, I know we're connected and, and share insights from time to time as well. So thank you, Holly. Um, also, thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in, um, for listening to the end. Thank you. I really appreciate that. If you're not already subscribed, please do subscribe on all the major platforms uh, to keep updated on future episodes of the Inclusion Bytes podcast, B-I-T-E-S. I try and release them weekly uh, where I can. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, please do share the love. I have a number of other exciting guests lined up that I'm sure you'll be equally inspired by over the next few weeks, months, and hopefully years. Of course, if you think you would like to come on the show, inspire people, I'd love to hear from you, as I would welcome any comments, feedback, and suggestions you may have on how I can improve. So finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It has been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye.